Pero esta música, ¿por qué no se toca en vivo? A ver, toca en vivo. No, pues ¿quién la va a tocar en vivo? Pues yo la voy a tocar, compadre. Probando, sí, y ya hace 20 Welcome to Radio Utblick. In this edition, we take a look at a country with many faces, Mexico. Mexico has a colonial past in the North Americas, when indigenous people to a very large degree were annihilated in what was to become the United States. Many survived in what was called New Spain. Countless more died all over North America in what today is being argued a genocide. Today, 20% of the population in Mexico identifies as indigenous. Many of them poor and many migrating to the north are of the indigenous population. It is, like the US, a country where race is a major factor and racism widespread. Who is white and who is not? This is in a country where nationalism was built on a mix of the Spanish and the indigenous, mestizos. And today, a large majority of Mexicans identify as mestizo, mixed. Mexico is an industrialized country, member of the G20. It is a rich country with metropolitan art and culture, especially in the megacity of Mexico City. To most people in the West, it is a luxurious vacation destination with sandy beaches and piña coladas. It is, however, also a very poor country, worn torn with extreme violence. Since the Mexican government proclaimed the war on drugs in 2006, Death tolls in this conflict are since in the hundred thousands. The many murders and violence are fought out between different cartels, fighting over trafficking routes between the market in the north and the suppliers south of the US border. The Mexican army is trying to combat the influence and power of organized crime, the cartels, that they have accumulated in decades-long involvement in drug trafficking, an annual estimated $50 billion industry. Mexico is in a way a country caught in between, the north and the south, rich and poor, developed, underdeveloped, colonial, post-colonial, authoritarian and democratic. We have talked to a few different people in order to try and paint a picture of the complex Mexican predicament. It is a very harsh picture, focused on violence and corruption. Dr. Lorenzo Mayer is a Mexican historian and a political scientist in the field of international relations, living in Mexico City. I sat down to talk to him about the history of Mexico, the current political situation, and challenges of Mexico today and the future. So, where do you start to understand Mexico? The Mexican political system of the 20th century was the product of the Mexican Revolution. In many ways, it was a progressive uh, system at the beginning, uh, land reform and supporting of the workers' uh, rights and the nationalization of the oil industry and things like that. That was the beginning. But uh, It came with a seed on it, the authoritarian element. And uh, with the passing of time, this progressive attitude of the uh, Mexican political system based on two things, two important things. 
a political party that was a state party and a very, very strong presidency. Those were the, the key elements uh, in, the, in the political uh, environment of Mexico. And uh, after the second half of the 20th century, the system began to move towards the right, a very conservative, authoritarian uh, system that was, that was probably perfect for the United States during the Cold War. It uh, had everything under control. The political discourse was progressive, uh, anti-imperialist even, but in the real life, it was very much hand in hand with the United States and going to the right, to the right, until the end of the century when the Cold War was a history and then the authoritarian system, uh, functional for the U.S., functional for the uh, right in Mexico, began to show problems. And um, the state party began to crumble due to economic constraints, corruption, and what they called the third wave of democracy that came very late to Mexico, but came at the end of, exactly at the end of the century. And for a while, we thought that we had just gone from authoritarian to the beginning of a democratic system. But that was a, a, something that I can call a mirage, because uh, at the end, right now, uh, the elements of the past are becoming again, the authoritarian elements are becoming to the center of the system again. And I think that we just thought that we had had a transformation of the system, but uh, it is not the case. We still don't have a democratic political life in Mexico, although we don't have the stability of the past. The presidency is not that powerful, and the state party is no longer a... Uh, the dominant uh, political organizations. We have several other parties from the right, from the left. And there is a kind of constant struggle between the traditional and very strong authoritarian inheritance of the past and the beginning of something that we can call democracy. So right now, the Mexican political system is an hybrid. It's a mixture of both things, uh, democratic and authoritarian, and we don't know who is going to prevail, if the authoritarian element or the democratic element. Could you say that it has taken a long time for the Mexican political system to mature? Uh, because it's basically during the same time as uh, the Western uh, democracies evolving, yeah. uh, but maybe to a more mature state. How, how come uh, the Mexican system doesn't mature in the same rate if it basically starts at the same time 
uh, as Western democracies in Europe and uh, also in North America? I think that uh, a key uh, element to understand the nature of the evolution of Mexican political system is the colonial past. Because Mexico was, um, there were two colonies in, in America. Uh, the one type of colonization was in the United States. It's a, it's a colonization of, that the key element is to, to populate uh, the north part, the northern part of America with Europeans. Uh, displacing the native populations and uh, bringing Africans. But basically it was a, a Western European uh, political system, culture, traditions, and so forth. In the case of Mexico, as in the case of Peru and Bolivia, there were already very heavy demographic um, concentrations of pre-Hispanic uh, people, of original people, and a very few tiny little European elements. So those colonizations had at the core an element of exploitation. The idea was to use the native population to work on basically mining and produce a, a, silver, gold, for the uh, international market. But they needed the local population, and they needed this population in a, a kind of semi-slavery uh, situation. So when, in the 19th century, uh, the whole continent became independent and new nations arise, there were two types of systems. The North American, that was basically European, and the rest, the Latin America, that was basically a mixture of a very heavy indigenous population that had no idea and possibility of being citizens. They were subjects, although now, uh, the colonial link was cut. The way of controlling them, the culture, was extremely authoritarian. So democracy was not, a, the environment was not the proper one for a democratic development. It was a continuation uh, of the colonial experience, although this time with local elites instead of Spain or Portugal, that, that were the former uh, metropolitan uh, uh, countries, this time the local elites recreated this very uh, divided society between a few, uh, very few indeed, owners of land or uh, the leaders of the church, uh, the intellectuals that were basically from European ancestry and the huge mass of uh, 
Indians and, and uh, mestizo uh, population. And uh, that was not a fertile soil for democracy. And still, we, we, still, we are still fighting against this uh, inheritance from the centuries past. That's why we are so late in developing um, something that can be called democracy. Of course, it will never be uh, similar to the Western Europe or the United States and Canada. Uh, but I think that we still can create something better than we have right now. And especially in the case of Mexico, because Mexico is, uh, in the 20th century, it was the most stable country in Latin America, but it was stable because of a very successful authoritarian system. Now we are having more trouble than anybody else in, well, almost uh, anybody else in transforming, in shape, reshape, reshape the, the whole social, cultural, and political system in order to make it uh, more or less a democracy. But it's taking uh, longer than we thought, and it's going very it's going to be very difficult to reach that stage in which we can say finally we are a democracy you, you talk about reshaping mexican society what does that imply today it implies something very simple and extremely difficult to to do about half of the uh, mexican population let us say 46, 47 percent, uh, and according to figures uh, given by the government, can be considered poor, and really they are very poor. And on the other side of the social spectrum, there are four families, four, five families, that... Uh, Together, they account for 8% of the gross national product, the, the wealth of these four or five families. There is a, I'm uh, thinking of um, a, a study made last year by Oxfam Mexico. It's a very small study, 45 pages long, full of statistics. Uh, of this um, brutal concentration of wealth, of income. How do you reshape that uh, society? In, in the, at the beginning of the 19th century, when uh, Alexander von Humboldt from Prussia, uh, probably the most well-known scientist in Europe at that time, went to Mexico, went to Peru and Mexico, And uh, he said, my God, this is a very divided society. He said uh, the extremes of poverty and uh, wealth are of such a nature that I haven't seen something equal in the world. He was coming of uh, the Europe of 
the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, and, well, uh, the distance between poor and rich in Europe was very high. But he said, in Mexico, or New Spain, because it was still New Spain, this is extreme, and we are still struggling uh, with this kind of society that is ex very, very different from yours. Uh, you have to live there and to be there to understand this gap between rich and poor. Uh, it's not only the material gap, it's cultural, it's, uh, uh, it's very unfair. It's a very unfair society. So democracy requires a little bit of equilibrium between the extremes. Uh, and it, but if the extremes are so obvious, like in Mexico, then the room for democracy is very small. If you divide other big challenges to, uh, to the Mexican transformation of society or the situation as it is today, I was thinking about uh, jobs, security, drugs, cartels, violence, and least, but not least, uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. If, if, we, if we start with migration, maybe, as something to have to do with poverty, people migrate, they emigrate to the U.S. How big of an impact has the migration from Mexico to U.S.? How big of an issue is that? Yes, you are right. It's a, it's a big issue because Mexico has about 10% of its population living in the United States, even more. But if you include those who were born in the U.S. but are of Mexican origin, my God, you have a lot of them there. There is a kind of second Mexico in uh, living in the United States. And... Uh, I think that its impact is greater in the U.S. than in Mexico. There is uh, in the southern part of, of the United States an impact of Mexican culture, Mexican language, Mexican food. Uh, there is a, a Mexican-American society. But now, with the a new administration in the United States, Mr. Trump is using this fact that has been there for many, many years uh, as, as a challenge, a menace to the U.S. essence. A very famous political scientist in the United States from Harvard, Samuel P. Huntington, uh, wrote a book, and this book uh, is called who are we? He's asking himself, who are we Americans? And we are the descendants of Protestant Europeans. We cannot accept the Latin Americans. But when, we, when he speaks of Latin America, or Hispanics, as uh, they call Latin Americans in the U.S., he's talking about Mexicans. And Huntington has a a kind of sociological explanation saying we have to to stop this otherwise what had made the United States a big nation is going to be in danger by the presence of Mexicans 
So Mexican migration, it's a phenomenon that is affecting both countries. In the case of Mexico, now Trump is uh, saying we are going to build a huge, beautiful wall between Mexico and the United States. But we as a society have to rethink what on earth we are uh, to be the neighbors of such a powerful nation that is telling you we dislike you, we don't want you. You have to react in a positive way and try to find economic uh, links with Europe, with Latin America, with China, with Asia, uh, and don't depend on the U.S. the way we are depending now because 80% of our exports are going to the U.S. Of course, some of these exports are the product of U.S. factories in Mexico. We have to rethink the whole economy of Mexico, the, the, the whole idea of Mexico as different from the U.S. So you might say also that one way of transforming the Mexican society is also transforming the relations between Mexico and the U.S., maybe to become something more similar to normal neighboring countries, like, for instance, Sweden, Denmark, Denmark, Germany, and so exactly. forth. Exactly, but uh, the problem is the asymmetry of power. The U.S. is so powerful and we are so weak. And then the problem of illegal markets, the drugs, because the, the U.S. government is always uh, saying, well, you are sending us drugs, but they are sending us weapons, thousands, hundreds of thousands of weapons, because you can buy weapons in the U.S. as easily as buying, uh, I don't know, uh, Norm furniture, for example. You can buy your furniture, you can buy your automatic weapon uh, almost the same day, the same way. And these uh, weapons are always going to Mexico. Uh, and the money, the narco-traffic, uh, the criminal element in Mexico, the organized crime that is corrupting many things, well, they leave because the U.S. is buying the drugs and sending them the dollars. They are very powerful because they have lots of money. But where the money comes from the U.S. consumers? How, uh, how do you stop the demand for drugs? How? Is, is that a legal problem or is it a cultural problem? Or is both things at the same time? But the, the, the market is there. The market has not changed. They are demanding drugs. They are sending dollars. They are sending the weapons. And Mexico is disintegrating in many uh, regions because, of, because they are under the control of the uh, narco-traffickers. And the violence, it has, uh, it has created an, an, an environment of violence that is unbelievable. The cruelty, uh, they, don't, they not only kill people, the way they kill people in order to create uh, terror, panic in 
in some regions to terrorize their uh, opponents, their competitors. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a horrendous situation. And uh, you cannot solve it if the U.S. is not willing to stop buying. Uh, drugs are made in Mexico, but Mexico is also the part of the chain of coming from Bolivia, from Colombia, from Peru, the cocaine. Mexico produces heroin and marijuana amphetaminas. The, the key ingredients for the amphetaminas came from China and India. So this is an international, <laughs> international uh, there's no There's no one-way solution to all of these problems, really. There's like the transformation of the Mexican societies maybe built on a multilateral and bilateral solution together with the U.S. And maybe the wall that Trump is talking about is on the very, very far side, if not extremely naive side of that solution. Naive or demagogic solution? He knows that it's a stupidity. But it's, it's very... It's selling to, to uh, his political basis. They love the idea of the wall because it's, it's an easy solution that avoids to look at the U.S. demand for drugs. That is a problem of the U.S. Why they are willing to buy drugs in such an amount, annoying, knowing that behind that drug is a world of crime. Uh, hundreds of people <clears throat> kill, thousands kill every year, and they know that yeah, they don't care. They want their drugs. And a weak society with weak, very weak institutions, the uh, institution of justice, the police, are so weak in Mexico, so full of corruption. That is a, is a, is, is a devilish cycle. It's, uh, the institutions are weak because the power to corrupt them is so big and that power continues to be big because the institutions are weak <laughs> and it's it's a circle that i don't really know how to how to uh, destroy that that cycle vicious cycle if we um, conclude that the trump wall is just an idea and it's never going to happen but we also assume that it's uh, maybe a beginning of uh, a long time of difficult relations to the U.S. Is, is Mexico forced to look in a different direction? I'm thinking about uh, multilateral organizations like uh, uh, BRICS, the BRICS countries, or maybe geographically further south with the South America. Is, is, is Mexico trying to look elsewhere for solutions that doesn't include the U.S.? It's impossible to, to avoid the U.S. because the U.S. is there. It's so close, so close. That, but we have to dilute, to, to minimize uh, the U.S. influence in, in Mexico. And we have 
One way that we are not using is our own internal market. With so many Mexicans so poor, uh, we are about 120 million people. Well, it's not a big market, but it's it's a sizable market. Uh, can you imagine 120 million of middle class buyers and uh, middle class uh, consumers and producers? So we have to look at our own internal market also that is so weak that we are not using it. It's, it's one possibility. Look at Europe, China, Latin America, uh, and try to diversify. But it's easy to say that it's very difficult to do that. <laughs> but if you compare to the BRICS countries who start trade agreements that are not geographically based, that are more based on developing emerging mm -hmm. economies, could that be a way forward for Mexico, uh, something to do parallel to the bilateral agreements with the U.S. and Canada, with NAFTA and such? Yes, I think that NAFTA is going to uh, to be reshaped, but it's going to remain because there are now so many uh, big interests in the United States. They don't want to destroy NAFTA, but we have to go beyond NAFTA and to try to to make it less important in the global view of Mexico. Yes, we need to. Uh, rethink and rewrite the agreements with other countries, with other continents. It's a matter almost of life and death for Mexico right now, because our leaders never expected such a brutal uh, attitude on the part of, the, of Washington to say, to hell with you, we don't want you. In the past, the U.S. was, to a certain extent, a guarantor of stability in Mexico because they needed stability because of the Cold War. They didn't want another Cuba, a big Cuba. <laughs> With one Cuba, it's enough for them. Two, it's going to be very difficult. But now there is no Cold War, so they don't care about it. And Trump is going inside, look, in, uh, uh, isolating, to a certain extent, the United States. So this isolation... Uh, forces the, the the Mexican leadership to rethink, but they are not doing that. They are very much uh, in the uh, obsessively thinking in the political survival of the system, and they don't want to engage in a, a remaking of the Mexican international links. But elections are coming, coming next year, and I hope that the next government will have to face that and be willing to face that and probably will be able to transform that political problem into an asset for uh, asking the Mexican public uh, support and energy to reshape Mexico. Is there uh, something... Uh like the U.S. is a huge attracted force for Mexico, obviously, since it's a neighboring country. It's a huge economy. Is there something similar south 
of Mexico that could that is emerging. You often hear about uh, Latin America as a continent getting closer and merging together. Uh, is is it something on the horizon that could be in between U.S. Well, and Latin America for Mexico? A little bit, because the 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 key actor there is Brazil. Brazil, uh, it's really uh, the main decision maker in South America, and right now Mexico and Brazil are not very close because NAFTA. NAFTA forced Brazil to uh, think in the future without Mexico. And Mexico was very happy. The Mexican elites were very happy. They, don't, they didn't like the idea of uh, uh, having negotiations with the rest of Latin America. But now, <laughs> Mexico needs Latin America, and the Mexican leadership will have to have to uh, get closer with Brazil. Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru, Colombia. You know, that was an idea that came out in the 1960s uh, from uh, the Economic Com Commission for Latin America, Uh, the head of that commission, Raúl Previch, uh, an Argentinian economist, had an idea of a, of a huge uh, Latin American trade uh, association, thinking precisely in uh, creating a, a block in the 1960s uh, with a, not exactly free trade, but certain preferences. It was more modest. And at the same time, it was an interesting uh, proposition because it was almost half a century ago that they, uh, this group, tiny group of economists began to think, well, what if we create uh, an artificial uh, Latin American market protected from Europe and from the United States? Asia, China was absent of the panorama was basically Western Europe and the U.S. If we are able uh, to overcome the political difficulties and uh, the little interest of uh, economic elites in Latin America and thinking big and in the future, we can create a huge uh, economic market for Latin America and compete in the long run with the United States and Europe, it was impossible. It was impossible because each country uh, had, ah, no, I, I, I want to, to have the, the car factory here in Brazil. No, 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 in Argentina, no, in Mexico. And it was a mess. There was no way of creating this. But now, when... Uh, Things are becoming really pretty serious for Mexico. And uh, I think that it's time for rethink, uh, modernize the same thing. Because uh, we have lost half a century. The idea was a good one in the 1960s. 
And you also have the reference of the European Union 70 years later, so there's much to point at. Exactly, you are right. But we thought about this before the European Union, but we missed the opportunity. And uh, this second chance, we cannot miss it uh, again, because it will be... uh, it will be an historical disaster if we uh, remain so divided. Uh, the rivalries uh, between the different countries of Latin America. We have to accept that Brazil is going to be the the, the, the biggest uh, uh, economic actor there, and it's easy for Mexico to deal with Brazil than to deal with the United States. <laughs> Yeah, we have the same situation in the European Union, of course, and we also have the historical disaster as maybe the the reason why we even have the European Union, the Second World War. And Germany is very influential together with, with France. And I mean, there are... <laughs> you are perfectly right. It was after a big disaster that the European Union came uh, about. And uh, we... We are not thinking of wars in Latin America, but we are thinking of uh, uh, losing time. We are at war with time, and we have lost a lot of time. Uh, So the disaster is already here for us, because uh, Mexico thought, I think that uh, it was a, a dream of the political elite to say, we have many things in common with the U.S. and we are part of La- uh, North America. <laughs> but now we know that uh, uh, North America means the U.S. and even Canada don't want uh, this uh, kind of uh, economic and uh, cultural uh, unity that you need to, to, to have uh, these things working because they don't want uh, Mexicans in, in the U.S., not even in Canada. Uh, the European Union had this uh, possibility of exchanging uh, people, uh, workers from here to there. And, uh, and we started with economical integration, and then we thought that social integration would follow. And that's where Europe is today, questioning if the economical integration is all that needs to create social integration. So whereas maybe US and Canada keeps objecting, like there's a, too much cultural differences yes. between the countries, maybe economical integration is a good start that has been great for Mexico with NAFTA and so forth. But if we're thinking about the example of uh, something similar of a European Union, in South America, the social aspect might be less important than economical integration, because economical integration might carry social integration. I agree with you completely. It's easier for us to think about uh, social and cultural integration with the rest of, of Latin America. But uh, probably we needed this disaster that Trump has produced to realize that uh, that was not the path uh, for the future, that we had to rethink our own, the nature of our own societies 
and the 21st century uh, probably can be positive for Latin America if Latin America gets serious about uh, integration, real integration among us. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for your interest in Mexico. I'm really glad that somebody outside Mexico is interested in our problems because they are very huge and complex. Hello, Marcelino speaking. In order to get a better understanding of the Mexican war on drugs, I picked up a phone and made a call to Uppsala University Conflict Data Program at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research. Is it a war? Whose war is it? And why is it so difficult to figure out these questions? We talked to Marcelina Priadi, who does the coding of the Mexican data entries. Well, from our data, it's very evident that there is a large amounts of violence within the category of non-state violence occurring in Mexico. Um, And this is quite a special case um, in terms of other conflicts. So um, if we look at in terms of 2017, um, there is fracturing of the cartels going on, um, especially because the Sinaloa cartel, which has been uh, the most dominant cartel in Mexico for some time, um, and to the point where this has led to a decrease in competition and termed a Pax Sinaloa, um, that has been fractured because of the arrest and then um, transfer of the leader, El Chapo, to the U.S., how many people in total actually die in Mexico because of uh, the drug violence and connected violence? Is there a figure? Well, yes. Um, well, we know from uh, Justice in Mexico program uh, based in the US, um, and their research has shown that of the homicide rates, there is between a third to a half of these are usually attributed to drug-related violence or organized crime violence. Um, And so if we look at the figures for 2016, this was approximately 6,500 to almost 11,000 attributed to that. Um, And in 2017, um, figures are still coming out for that. Uh, For UCDP, we haven't developed our figures yet, but um, Millennio have released um, numbers for that are 12,500, and Lantia have released figures of nearly 19,000 drug-related um, deaths for 2017. Um, and that uh, reflects the expectations, really, given the amount of homicides overall. If we look at the UCDP figures, uh, I would like to point out um, our figures within the non-state violence conflicts are much lower, but this is due to our uh, methodology. And for us, it's very important to be able to identify specifically um, the perpetrators and and allocate 
these deaths to a specific pair of conflict actors, what we call a conflict dyad. And given the nature of the violence in Mexico, that makes it incredibly difficult um, for us to do that. Uh, what kind of actors are you um, describing in your reports? Um, so within Mexico, like the drug cartels are uh, by far the main actors in terms of the organized violence we have within UCTV. And uh, how 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 involved would you say that the state is involved um, in the violence? Compared well, to the different cartels and their the violence amongst themselves, and civilians mm-hmm. uh, caught in between. Mm-hmm. Um, well, relative to the cartels, um, it seems that the cartels are responsible for a large proportion of the organized violence, um, rather than the state. Um, but I, there are a lot of um, incidences between the state and these cartels that are, uh, result in uh, a number of deaths as well. But that is um, something that falls outside the scope of uh, state-based violence within um, our definitions because there is no incompatibility between the two. And that makes Mexico a very um, special case in that sense. Yeah, how is the impact on society in Mexico from this violence? Well, the impact is quite widespread throughout society. Um, I mean, especially if you look at uh, the increase in violence over the recent years, that has led to a substantial increase in perceptions of insecurity for the population, um, specifically uh, in urban areas as well where the violence has spread into um, areas where it was less uh, present. Um, For example, in Mexico City, there was a shootout in June or July, um, which is not that common, this shootout between the state um, and the Navy against a relatively small uh, criminal group that is connected to the Sinaloa cartel, according to some reports. In that sense, that's um, that's huge. Um, and it also results in areas such as ghost towns, um, where the violence is so large or threats of violence um, lead to entire towns being emptied, where everyone moves away, um, especially along the coast or border areas. Um, and areas in higher, more uh, rural areas particularly, sometimes schools are closed because there are no teachers that want to go and teach in the areas due to the threat of violence. Um, and I mean, uh, there are silent areas uh, in Mexico, such as Tamaulipas, where journalists are forced to well, feel forced to employ self-censorship because of the targeting of journalists. I mean, it is one of the most dangerous countries for journalists. Um, And there are 
often targeted for their work on reporting on the drug cartels. Um, but on the other hand, it's really important to realize that uh, Mexico also functions um, as with as a democratic state with uh, institutions and normal life with such as a huge tourist industry, like there are food in the supermarkets. Um, there are areas that are untouched by this violence. Um, but uh, so that has to be taken into account. How is the impact on the Mexican state from all this violence? Uh, state functions? Uh... The issue of corruption is um, huge for Mexico. Um, I can't remember how far it dropped, but I believe Mexico in 2015 was ranked uh, number 95 for in the corruption index. Uh, whereas it dropped to something like 120 or 30 uh, in 2016. Um, and so it was on par with countries such as Azerbaijan, and that um, has a huge impact uh, on people's trust in state institutions and feeling of uh, and the monopoly on violence. Uh, but there's also um, the violence has dictated the strong militarization of security policy. So, for example, the military um, are used to deal with these cartels when they are engaging in crime, which is ordinarily dealt with by the police. Um, but the levels of violence that are involved are so much that they, the Mexican government has felt that this is the way to go forward. What, what level of conflict is it in Mexico if you compare it to other ongoing conflicts like, like war, like more traditional war zones, even if they also might be part of the new war uh, paradigm? But I'm thinking about countries like Syria and Afghanistan or Iraq. What level of mm-hmm. conflict uh, or violence is it compared to these other areas? Um, Well, if we take the figures for the non-state conflicts and aggregate them, so all of those uh, non-state conflicts between the cartels occurring within Mexico, um, those numbers uh, reach above our threshold for war. Um, And that's not a light term to use when you consider that For 2016, say, uh, there were only 12 conflicts um, we identified in the world that reached the threshold to be deemed a war. And that's not directly comparable, given that I'm uh, aggregating these conflicts, but in terms of spatial uh, violence, all of that happening in Mexico, um, that puts uh, Mexico up up there with these... um, conflicts. Uh, So if we take the best estimates for 2016, um, which was just over 1,300 deaths, that is similar to the numbers of that uh, number of deaths 
between the government of Turkey and IS and that we have for 2016, and that is related to uh, violence mostly in northern Syria. Um, having said that, you know, that conflict is only one of multiple going on in Syria um, as well. But if we look at the high numbers we have for Mexico in 2016, which is over 5,000, um, that figure is um, surpasses other conflicts we have, such as uh, between the government of Somalia to and al-Shabaab, or the conflict in Darfur between the government of Sudan and the Sudan Revolutionary Front. Um, what the podcast is trying to do is to figure out what is going on in Mexico, whether to treat this as as a war, mm. not from the perspective of the Mexican government that's been running this as a war on drugs uh, together mm-hmm. with the U.S., but more like the impact that it has on this nation. Definitely. Uh, I think the f- one of the most important things is to understand um, the very exceptional uh, nature of the violence going on in Mexico, given that it is resulting from um, organized crime um, and that, for example, like these cartels are operating with the same levels of formal structure and uh, violence capabilities and equipment um, as other non-state actors uh, operating in several other countries across the world. Um, And yet they have no desire uh, to content the state. That's why they have no incompatibility with the government of Mexico in our data. And and they really just want to be left alone and get on with their their business. Um, And that has different causes um, and... Uh, potentially different uh, needs to address this. Um, but Mexico really is, uh, from its history, like a country in the middle uh, between the consumers and the suppliers. Um, and one thing for 2018 that will be really interesting to see is how the legalization of drugs in California uh, affects violence in Mexico, it would be very hard to disaggregate. But that's not me arguing for legalization or the illegalization of drugs at all. And I wouldn't want that to be um, portrayed in any sort of way. But um, it's in that sense, I think it's important for the countries to collaborate on how to tackle this violence. <laughs> My name is Carlos Guerra. I'm a 28-year-old student from Mexico City, and I'm currently studying the International Administration and Global Governance Program in the Gothenburg University. We have painted a bleak picture of extreme violence, corruption, and poverty in Mexico. It is easy to forget that life is going on parallel to this academic dissection. Therefore, to get a personal side of the story, I met up with a former resident of Mexico City to hear what it's like to live a normal life in such a huge metropolitan area with all the violence going on around the country, or whether it's possible at all. 
I mean, it's like a double-sided weapon. Uh, in many things, it's uh, really nice, and the people are awesome. The food is great. Uh, the nightlife is beautiful. Everything. There's a lot of nice things to see in like in every cosmopolitan city. But at the same time, you're always exposed to some dangers that people don't realize that are happening, or they just take for granted, or maybe they just think it's the normal way of living, so they don't consider them to be a bigger threat. But in my case, it was even affecting. Uh, my health because I was getting stressed, I was getting anxiety and uh, it wasn't healthy for me anymore to be there. So I made a decision of going somewhere else also because I wanted to come to Sweden for such a long time that I had to do it in the end. Otherwise, uh, my, health, my health started deteriorating quite a bit and I didn't think that was a nice thing for me to happen. When you say that your health is deteriorating, could you explain uh, in what way how the life in Mexico City affects you in that kind of Yeah, I think there's a lot of things uh, going on. For example, you have pollution that is always there. You have uh, an, a huge uh, problem with traffic jams and just being late to everywhere. Uh, you also have like this sense that uh, corruption is rampant. Like if you can pull by the police or you have to like get any bureaucratic process done. So all of those, those things were like combined through the years made my health like to start deteriorating in the sense that I was getting anxiety attacks or like panic attacks or I just like was stressed for the whole time. I even was dizzy for two months in a row, which uh, made me realize that I really needed to get out of there because all of it combined was not really good, like pollution, corruption, security, all the dangers uh, inherent to Mexico, uh, for me at least, were not something that I wanted to live with. Uh, when you talk about uh, international relations, you often talk about uh, failed states. Uh, are you familiar with the concept? Yes, yes, of course. How would you how would you rank uh, Mexico as a as a potential failed state from your perspective? How does it how does it feel to live in Mexico with, uh, for instance, uh, the trust in government or the trust in uh, the police or social services, etc. Yeah, I think Mexico is really lacking in those areas. I would never put my trust in the police or the government officials. Even though there are some good people trying to make a difference, the majority of them are just trying to take a, a cut from like the, the money of, uh, that is supposed to be used in, in government works or projects. So in that sense, I can, I can really see Mexico as a fragile state, maybe not like going directly into a failed state, but like really going there in that sense. It's like uh, you can see some areas that are not uh, strong enough to call Mexico a strong country as they call it in just being ranked as the 15 or 20, like between the 20 countries. So I, I just think that's like a facade for bringing tourism or something because things are worse than they are sh uh, shown in the news or in the media. Do you have any family across Mexico? Uh, yes, not not that many, but... Yes, I do. Do you have a? Is it a big difference in uh, the the living experience from your life and uh, your relatives? Yes, for example, I have uh, some family that lives in the state of San Luis Potosí, which is in the north, and it's just like a it's a small town, and you can see the difference when you go there. Uh, it's like going back 50 years because they don't have like proper infrastructure and the, the housing is just built when when wherever, and uh, they don't have like uh, all of the I don't know, like the commodities you would enjoy in a bigger city such as Mexico City. So you can see that the lives of th those people are is like 
way behind of where, what is to be expected of a strong country supposed to be Mexico in this, in this sense. How, how strong is the presence of the cartel wars and the drug wars and all the violence that is going around Mexico? In, I mean, in that area, in the north, where your in the north is rampant. Like, if you go to the north, you are on your own. There are some cities that I would never step foot in, just because I know it's pretty bad. Especially close to the border to the U.S., where all of those things are happening, or like the central north states as well, because there are a lot of uh, cartels fighting for territory in those uh, places, and of course, it makes it really dangerous since you can be. Uh, I don't know, it just, it just happened to walk into a, a confrontation between the two parts and then it, it's not going to be... They don't going to care if you are walking there. You're just going to keep firing and then maybe you get shot or kidnapped for like raising money for whatever activities they're trying to do or something like that. So you, don't, you never know their motives, so you never know if they're going to be okay with you there or they're going like, to take advantage of you being from another state or something like that. You told me earlier about... Uh a situation going to a nightclub and yeah. how, how that experience can can cause stress. Being in Sweden, when you go to a nightclub, you expect seeing maybe a, a nice band playing live yeah. or listening to some great dance music. What, what do you expect or what do you... How do you how do you prepare to go out a night in Mexico City, for instance? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a journey because... Since the, the Mexico City is so big, you have to like plan ahead. So you have to consider all all of those factors. Like for example, if you're gonna take a taxi or you, or you're gonna take your car, but then if you take your car, you're like you cannot drink. But the distances are so big that you cannot just walk or bike or whatever. So you have to make those preparations. And then when you get there, like there have been stories in the news where like the drug cartels go into the into the clubs or especially like the the kids of the drug cartel lords. And then they just like take the whole place with people inside, and then they just do whatever they want with the people there. So they they like hit hit the guys, rape the girls, uh, and no one can leave because what, how can you oppose to them if they're carrying long weapons or the security of the club is not even able to repel that kind of uh, confrontation? Uh, what do you think that anybody can do about this? Like, what, what can you do about this? What could the officials do about this? Or moreover. Uh, do you think anything is being done about this? Well, I think there are things that are trying to be done, but since corruption is so high uh, and the drug cartels have so much money, it's just really easy to bribe any official into doing whatever they want. So I think that first we would need to get rid of all the corrupt, uh, for example, corrupt government officials or corrupt police officers and then... like establish a new system, like a, a new complete police force, because, I mean, you cannot just check one by one and fire them. I, I would just try, for example, the case in, in Georgia, like they just fired 16,000 police officers during one night. I think that's like, we need a more pragmatic approach into that, like just change the whole thing. But of course, that's, that's going to cause like some uprising because people there are never uh, quiet about those things happening. So even if they're corrupt, they're going to manifest, about, like protest about it which is uh, even worse because then you have a bigger problem if you have a lot of unemployed police officers in the streets rioting. So in that sense, it's a really difficult question to see like a really uh, straight answer to it. Do you th see things getting better or worse in the recent years? Where are we on this? Uh... I would say that it's definitely getting worse. Uh, there, th this year, 2018, 
or at, at least no, it was 2017. We have like the highest uh, murder rate in like in 20 years. So we have like 80 murders per day, which amounts for 29,000 or so murders per year, which is like the biggest, uh, the largest amount of murders in the back in the past 20 years. Which is, I think it's it's just insane. Like. People just talk about countries that are war-torn, like Syria or Iraq or stuff like that. But Mexico is also in like this really critical situation where no one is doing anything. Like you can consider like there, there's a war going on, even if it's not not against like countries. You can say it's uh, between the people there, which is even worse because it's like a civil conflict that, like, since people are so diverse and different there, uh, they they don't get along, and they just like, uh, for example, the drug cartels or, or like the indigenous people uh, trying to claim their rights. Uh, just everyone is trying to fight for something better. So that's pretty critical, I guess. Because mm. you also told me you more your you more or less or you did seek asylum in Sweden through Migrationsverket. Yeah, I tried because I, I didn't think it was like a far-fetched idea since the numbers are there. Um, So yeah, like I, I just sent a message some years ago about asking if it was possible for me to request asylum, not actually doing it, but if it was like a possibility with all those numbers I put in that message. But I never got a reply, which for me is it was really frustrating because I was trying to come here legally, just like trying to make something for myself and like integrate to another society, and then they were just like taking people from countries that are, of course, in a maybe worse condition, but that doesn't mean that Mexico is not also in need of uh, help, which people or the, the international community sometimes overlooks completely because they don't think it's as critical because they think that Mexico is doing well, and maybe it is, but just a little part of it. Like, it doesn't speak for the whole population if we're making progress in in some areas. Yeah. I mean, we don't uh, have to make an exact com- comparison between uh, refugees from refugees from different uh, conflict areas around the world, but it still it says something for you to actually uh, like yeah. moving somewhere else and leaving it behind. How, how does that make you feel that you don't want to be a part of Mexico in that sense? Like, uh, of course, I felt bad because like a lot of people were telling me that I was. Uh, leaving my country just to go to another place and they always criticize people if, if they do that like trying to leave they become some kind of traitor because you're supposed to be in your country and help but if the solution is not there especially if I was studying international relations and I have like a broad, broad concept of all the things that are wrong then I knew that it was not a good idea to stay there because some people they just throw their ideas at you not knowing the whole uh condition or the whole background of the conflict or whatever so in that sense i i mean i didn't i didn't care about what they said i just had to do it for myself because in the end it's only me that i'm taking care about so but i mean of course i felt bad <clears throat> you know leaving my family and uh, not being able to be with them because for example my mom she lives alone now and then uh, she tells me that she misses me and stuff like this. So, of course, it's hard. But, I mean, for me now, I feel like peace of mind and I feel happy. So I, I don't regret it, uh, living there. I mean, it was the best decision I could make because my health is now uh, good. I feel happy. I feel stable. So, in that sense, I don't regret living there. And I don't want to go back as well. Mm. And when you say you feel better, we're talking basically about, uh, like, depression caused out of extreme stress. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like... Uh, I would, I've never been uh, depressed in my life before that. I was always like happy and uh, outgoing, 
but then when you I think that when you start growing older and then you start to realize all of the things that are going on then you get like this better idea of how the things are really unfolding like the political uh, like context and all of the things going on so I mean I think that it, it is related to the more you know it makes you more uh, fragile to just breaking in that sense so of course I mean when it started causing me like depression or anxiety I, I, I knew that I was making the, the right decision just leaving Mexico for good mm. Um, you're more or less an example of what we what talked about as a brain drain. Yeah. In the countries where uh, the situation is of that sort that people don't really want to live there and people who have the means of going somewhere and escaping that reality basically can do that. Yeah. I mean, how representative would you say that you are in Mexico City if we talk about Mexico City as a region instead of something that is general for the whole country since it's so big and there's so much... Uh, <coughs> higher levels of uh, of conflict basically and violence in different parts of Mexico but we've talked about Mexico City what kind of uh, how representative are you as like a young guy from Mexico City well definitely I think that I'm uh, over the average because I, I was able to have a university education and like a really really good uh, high school and like education throughout my whole life so in that sense I guess I'm part of like a small percentage of people that are able to do that but then again if you just see the numbers then it's going to be a lot of people also able to do that because there's just so much people so but in the end I guess that only like the best job positions and all of that are reserved to nepotism and if you know someone if you have someone that it's able to get you a better job or, and stuff like that and I didn't want to be a part of it because in the end it affects all the lives of everyone because if you have someone in a position that they're not able to do then of course the country's not going to develop or it's not going to pro progress and I saw that for example I was working in the senate and I was working for a senator that used to be an, an, an Olympic athlete which of course she has no idea about politics or like the legislation of a country So I don't I, I didn't want to be a part of that because maybe I have like good education but if I'm going to be stopped by all of these uh, obstacles of nepotism and corruption then it's not worth it that I have a master's or a doctorate or whatever because I'm just going to be uh, stuck if I don't know the right people. Mm. So basically going into the system would be too much of a challenge in not becoming a part of this kind of uh, rotten or uh, basically very corrupt part of society. Yes, of course. I mean, it, for example, when I was working in, in the Senate, uh, even though I had like my, I was done with my bachelor's degree, uh, I was treated like a, like a, like if, it, if I was still like an intern or something because I wasn't, uh, I, I didn't have like a good uh, wage or I didn't have like a good research things to do. I was just like there just maybe to, uh, make coffee or something like that which felt like really frustrating because for example that senator was in the top of the whole thing and she didn't know nothing so the one that was always advising her was my immediate boss who was like a, a lawyer and he had like a master's degree and everything but what's the point of having that if you're only going to be there to advise someone else who is in a better position than you because she knows the right people so of course that's really frustrating because then what's the point of even starting or preparing yourself if you're going to just lo lose against some person that has a better contact than you. Mm. 
So it feels more of carrying water for a corrupt system, like being part of it than having yeah. the possibility to fight against it. Yeah, I guess when you're part of that, you're only uh, contributing with your... Like, Complacent, kind of. Yeah, or complying with some like standardized system that is seen as normal. But and, and then maybe they just use your knowledge because if you have like a good like skill set of knowledge, then maybe they're just gonna use that for their own advantage and not for the greater good as is like for the whole society. Uh, are there any new political movements in uh, Mexico that you feel that you could be a part of if you were to go back some someday in Mexico City? Do you see like anything uh, sprouting or is there a, already a broad movement? Yeah, I mean, there's always new political parties coming and going, uh, but in the end, I just try to maintain myself away from that because I just think it's the same, it's the same thing with another name. It's the same people in the background, like the same same people that are uh, trying to just get a piece of power. So I, I wouldn't consider myself joining one of those movements because maybe their po- political ideas are not uh, compatible with mine. Or maybe they're just like the same thing with another name, which is even worse because they're just trying to make this illusion that people may be able to change the system. But in the end, when you start to see the branches of all those new political movements, then you can see it's the same people that were in power, not, not maybe not even 10 years ago, but like 20 or 30 years, which is even worse because if you go all the way back and then you see that those people are still relevant in today's context, it's... That's really sad for me. How would you describe Mexico as a nation? It's, it's, a, it's a great place. Like the people, that's the thing. The people are always uh, working hard to, to live the day and they are like really committed to work and they're, they're super nice and warm. But it, it just depends because they can be the most nice people or they can be the worst because like I think what Mexican people hate the most is other Mexicans. You know, like they're, they're just trying to survive for themselves so they can become egoistic in that sense or selfish. But for example, if tourists come to Mexico, then they just die for them. They, they will give them everything they can to make them have like a pleasant visit. Like they will give them drinks or food and they will be super nice to them. But then when it comes to Mexico and to Mexican, then it's a completely different thing. And it also depends on what kind of... a social status you have in, in the whole hierarchy of Mexico to see if you're better than someone else. And I don't know, it's, it, there's like a huge conflict with that as well. But in the end, I think that it's a, it's a really nice country with a lot to offer, but it, it's only badly managed by, by the politicians and the, the system which makes it uh, what we have now. And I think part of that idea of, of uh, working hard and being committed to everything is the way of the Mexican of... Uh, just taking, like, seizing the day and, and being happy for what they have. So in that short-run short, short run thing, they are really grateful, even if they have little, which is really admirable. But in the end, they shouldn't be able to live with that little. They just should be happy being the same way they are, but with the, like, I don't know, the, the, the like, justice being done for them, not just only for the, long, for the short run or for the immediate pleasure or whatever. So it's basically the social contract that is pretty weak, you could say. Yeah, I mean, of course people don't, some of them, they don't uh, take the system up for what it is, but the majority of people are just too busy uh, surviving that they cannot take part of anything else. They just have to like provide for them and, and their families, which 
uh, most of the times are really big. So like a lot, a lot of kids uh, in like really bad conditions of living with like eating the same the, th the same things during the whole week. Of course, they had like uh, health problems because they're not getting all the nutrients or whatever. So I mean, they're just too busy just to be able to to do whatever else. Uh, and sometimes they do. I mean, sometimes they just join the political movements and they go to Mexico City to protest, but then they leave their lives behind and then they don't work. So it's even worse because they're not even providing for their family because some politicians, they just like buy them and then give them, I don't know, just like some food for like a short amount of time or some money and they just feel they can make a living out of it, being part of a movement and then getting some free provisions from the government but they don't know that they're just being used for as a political tool to fulfill the interests of a small elite. Living in different parts of Mexico could obviously entail uh, extreme difference in living circumstances. Uh, you're a student and you've been a student in Mexico and now you're a student in, in Sweden. There is this case of uh, Ayasenapa, 43, mm -hmm. Is that something you can kind of identify with? And if you could just explain, like, really short what yeah. this is about. So th there, there were these 43 students of uh, a rural school in, in the state of Guerrero that were abducted by the police and, and killed. And as, as of today, they haven't been found, I guess, because it, it just got, like, really controversial. But, but coming back to your question, I don't really see myself, like, identify myself with this movement at all because... It's just so far away from my standard way of living because, I mean, I, I can be grateful to say that I was part of the of the middle middle class, but that doesn't make it even better. I mean, just you're you're as exposed as everyone else to every every situation that could happen there. But I mean, in the in the in the broad aspect of what they were doing, uh, I don't fully understand. The, their motives for the movement they were planning to do in Mexico City before, because they were planning to go there and, and do a protest. And of course, I can tell it's about better conditions for whatever, for like studying, for working, for living. But as for myself, I don't see myself being part of any movement. No, I mean more as uh, the, tar the targeting of violence from the state. Mm. Like, could you identify with like, you're trying to make an... Um, even if this is like the most extreme example you can make because this is such an extreme event. But we're basically talking about a busload of students, maybe two or three buses being shot down in the, in the middle of a small town in Mexico City by yeah. supposedly Mexican police. police. Yeah, yeah uh, I mean, that's... What kind of mindset does that create for you? Like, I, I, just, I just think it's horrible that the... The government is so corrupt that they're able to pull that kind of thing off. And after that, that was in 2014. And after almost four years, they don't have a clue of what happened. Like they just have some ideas in the puzzle, but it's not fully uh, complete. So in that sense, it's really scary to to know that you are living in a country where those things can happen, and then no one is going to be able to know what happened to you if you are involved in that kind of thing. So that's, I mean, there, there's just so many people with so much power that it's scary to be able to see that that can happen. For example, me working in the Senate, I also saw those uh, 
examples of power being used for the benefit of uh, really like two or three persons. And that's really scary that they have like this leverage or these lobbying skills to be to change the whole country for just like a specific goal of someone that is that has too much power in their hands. How how apparent is corruption in the Senate working as uh, an advisor or a political uh, political advisor? I mean, how how much could you see just out in the open? Yeah, well, I mean, in in that sense, I guess it's not that visible when you're just an advisor, but that doesn't mean it's there. For example, if I was just working in one normal day and they were having a meeting in the next office, maybe they were talking about how to pull any project off with and, and getting money in, in in the meantime as well, like just embezzlement. Uh, but for, for example, like my, my immediate boss used to tell me how it's a, it's a good idea if you make a project just a little bit more expensive so you can take a cut of it. Instead of like adding a lot of millions of pesos, you just add one or two and then it's not noticeable in the federal budget uh, uh, like plan. And then you can just like take a cut and then maybe get away with it because it, it wouldn't be noticeable for others. And that's what everybody does, I guess. Like just, uh, I mean, there are some people that do it quite a lot and then they get caught of course so I, I think that as, as long as they keep it to the bare minimum they'll be able to do whatever they want with corruption there's basically funneling money from state run projects that yeah. they in somehow is uh, in control of yeah and it's crazy like for example there was this guy who used to be the former governor of the state of Veracruz and uh, he stole so much money from from the federal government like It was some something around two billion pesos, which I don't have the conversion right now, but it's just a lot of money. And all of the things he was doing, like he was, for example, supposed to be treating children with with cancer, with like uh, their chemotherapies and stuff, but instead they were giving all those kids like just uh, distilled water, so they never got a treatment. And they, um, I don't know if a lot of them died, but I mean, how can you just give distilled water to children and? go to their mothers and say, oh, yeah, they're getting treated. So after a year or two years or whatever, all of the all of the treatment they had was for nothing. And they just, like, instead of getting all the treatment, they just kept the money. I mean, how can... How evil can you be in your mind to do that to just, like, small children in, in desperate need of chemotherapy, you know? Like, that's, that's like, the most extreme it can go. Like, people just don't caring about anyone else but themselves to get rich. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you with for us. having me. Thanks. Thanks. You have listened to a podcast by the Society of International Affairs in Gothenburg, Sweden. My name is Gustav Nyqvist. This summer, in July, there is a presidential election in Mexico. As you have heard, not many people have high hopes for change, but many are in desperate need of that change especially the escalation of the cartel violence and the Mexican war on drugs. The problem seems to be that there is an all-out war made out of organized crime. They are one and the same, and that is something we have not seen before. Thank you for listening.
Swear.